Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilphah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and even and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray together. Listen to these words of Psalm 25. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of salvation. For you, we wait all day long. Amen. I read a couple weeks ago uh, this uh, from a writer who said that every organization, many of you are involved in organizations, many, every organization needs dreamers, but most make sure they have plenty of worker bees that can turn a good dream into a reality. Reminded me that all of us are kind of wired in different ways. God created each one of us uniquely, and some of us just tend to be dreamers, thinking about vision and big picture, and others of us tend to be doers. Sarah Ban Branick said this, she said, the world needs dreamers and doers, but above all, the world needs dreamers who do. You see, for those of us who are doers, we need some dreamers in our lives from time to time. We can often become so locked in one perspective or routine that we can't seem to get past it or to see past it. We can't see past all the obstacles that life throws our way. We have a hard time envisioning an alternative to what we know. But that's exactly what dreamers or even dreams in and of themselves can do for us. They interrupt the the daily flow of our lives and they open our eyes up to alternatives, to seeing something that is new. They engage our imagination and our our senses in a way that, that nothing else really can. Well, this morning we encounter a great dreamer who also happened to be a great doer as we look at Joseph's Advent dream from Genesis chapter 37 that we just read. Joseph was uh, just a child when he received these dreams from the Lord. He was simply minding his own business, uh, working in the fields with his brothers, 
when God entered in and God intruded into his life and into his story. This would be the first dream of many dreams that Joseph would have, but it was the one that changed his life more than any other dream he experienced. This morning what I'd like to do is just look at three aspects of this interesting dream uh, that Joseph had. The first thing we see is that it was a dream that was about an unlikely king. You see, Joseph was uh, number 11 out of 12 sons that were born to Jacob, who was the dreamer that we saw last week, if you were with us. He's also called Israel in this passage, and we know that he has a 12, 12 sons. He has a handful of daughters as well that were born to two wives and to two concubines. But out of all of Jacob's wife, wives, his favorite was Rachel, and she gave to him Joseph, who immediately became his favorite son. The token of, of Jacob's favoritism was this regal coat of many colors that Joseph wore very proudly, probably a little too proudly, uh, around his family. It was ostentatious, it was provocative, and it made everyone understand that Joseph was the favorite. Everybody knew it, and Joseph knew how to exploit it for himself. His brothers hated him because of it. They were envious and they were jealous of the favoritism. And their hatred boiled over one day when Jacob came to them telling them that he had two different dreams. In the first dream, Jacob saw a bunch of sheaves that were out in a field. Uh, Each brother uh, in the dream had a sheaf just like Joseph did. And in a very bizarre and dreamlike experience, each one of those sheaves bowed down to Joseph's sheaf. Everyone knew the meaning of the dream instantly. This was a dream that was about rule, and it was a dream that somehow told everyone that Joseph would rule over everyone else. In the second dream, the images were different, but the meaning was the same. In this dream, the sun and the moon and the stars, they all bowed down to Joseph. Both of these dreams told Joseph and his family that at some point, he would rule over all of them. You see, dreams awaken us to things that are unlikely. And this dream, in many ways, is no different. In the ancient world, everyone knew that the inheritance, the leadership, the blessing, and all authority went to the oldest son, the firstborn son, the eldest son, and Joseph was really far down on the list. He was pretty much uh, almost the runt of this litter. He was very far out of reach of any sort of leadership. When I thought about this uh, this week, I thought about an, an older comedy that I used to watch when I was a teenager, and it showed a scene about uh, a young man who was uh, going up to a girl that he was nervous to ask out because she was uh, clearly out of his league, as they say, and he finally gets up the courage and asks this girl out, and she says to him, I wouldn't date you unless you were the last man on the earth. And instantly his, his complexion brightens and he says back to her, so you're saying there's a chance that this could happen. 
Those were Joseph's chances of ruling over his family. They were slim to none. And yet, later on, Joseph's dream comes true, and he indeed does rule over his family. You see, this dream was ultimately about a very unlikely king. But it's also about a a king who suffered. We talked last week, if you were with us, about how often when God intrudes into our lives in miraculous ways, it often brings disruption. And that was certainly true for Joseph in this story. I wouldn't be surprised if he had an opportunity to interview Joseph later in his life when he was an old man and get him to reflect back on his life. I wouldn't be surprised if he said that this was when the greatest season of suffering began in his life. You see, the hatred and the jealousy and the anger finally boiled over for Joseph's brothers, and they plotted to have him killed. In the second half of uh, Genesis 37, it says that Joseph is walking on in the field, and his brothers see him coming, and they say to one another, here comes this dreamer. So what they do is they strip him of his clothing, and they throw him into a pit, leaving him for dead. One brother graciously intercedes and saves Joseph's life, but instead chooses to sell him into slavery. After all, we might as well make a profit out of this. In Genesis chapter 39, Joseph is sold as a slave into Egypt to Potiphar. And in a miraculous turn of events, he rises to promise in uh, Potiphar's home only to catch the eye of Potiphar's wife, the story tells us. And every day she tries to seduce Joseph, but he continually refuses. And finally one day she strips him of his clothes, which happens once again in his life, and she falsely accuses him of attempted rape, and Joseph is thrown into prison for several years. You can imagine that Joseph, while he's rotting away in prison, had to think back to this dream. How could it be possible for him to rule when he's imprisoned in a foreign land with no hope of deliverance at all? After all that he had suffered, after all that he'd been through, how could that dream he'd had so many years before finally come true? What he may or may not have realized in that moment is that, yes, he was called to be a king, but he was called to be a king who would suffer. He was an unlikely king who would suffer. But finally, what this story tells us is that he dreamt a dream about a king who would eventually become a deliverer. You see, through another set of dreams, Joseph becomes promoted to one of the most prominent places in the Egyptian empire. And his dreams come true. His dreams end up delivering the entire Egyptian people from a very dangerous famine. And then one day, as he is sitting on the throne ruling, Joseph's brothers come into his presence and they come in bowing down begging for food. 
You see, you expect Joseph in that moment to respond with retribution and anger after all that his brothers had done to him. But in the end, he instead runs to them, he kisses each one of them, and he embraces and weeps with each one of them. Now, why did he do that? He did it because he recognized that all of this was from God. That God had sent Joseph ahead of them in order to preserve their lives. And what he says at the very end of his story to his brothers is miraculous. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. You see, Joseph in that moment recognized that he was an unlikely king who had been called to suffer in order to deliver his people. Now, you might be sitting there uh, wondering about Joseph's story. It certainly is a story of a powerful way that dreams come true. But you have to be wondering, what in the world does this ancient story have to do with Advent? What does it have to do with this Christmas season and all the carols that we sing each year? Well, it actually has everything to do with it. Because what the Christmas story does is it tells us about another king. It tells us about Jesus, who was also an unlikely king who came to suffer in order to deliver his people. Jesus certainly was a very unlikely king. He was uh, born to Mary and Joseph, two uh, teenagers that were poor. His birth was uh, surrounded in scandal and whispering. The first people to visit him were a bunch of uh, misfit shepherds. He was raised in a know-nothing town. Nothing about him whatsoever shouted to everyone around him that he was a king, and yet He was the ultimate king. He was God in the flesh who lived among us. But he was an unlikely king who also came to suffer. He was largely rejected by everyone that was around him. He was treated with disdain by all of the most respected people of his day. Even his closest followers misunderstood him and were continually frustrated with him. Multiple groups on multiple occasions plotted to have him killed. He was rejected, he was afflicted, he was cast away, and he was generally hated. And in the end, all of his enemies succeeded. He was stripped of his clothes too. He was arrested and executed on a cross. And as he hung on that cross, they put a sign above his head that said, King of the Jews. He was an unlikely king who came to suffer. But finally, he was also a king who brought deliverance. He came to save you and I from our own spiritual famine because our sin had oppressed us. It had left us for dead. We stood condemned before a just and holy God waiting for the eternal punishment that each one of us deserved. And then Jesus came. This king took all of our sin upon his shoulders In a great exchange, he took our sin upon him and gave all of us his righteousness. He gave all of us his goodness. 
We are forgiven. We are made right. We are adopted. We are delivered. All because of an unlikely king who came to suffer. He endured it all so that you and I can experience life. So what should our response be? How ought we to respond to this unlikely king? Well, last week we saw Jacob's dream and the worship that ensued as a result of it. And we saw that Advent is all about responding to God in worship. So what should our response be to Joseph's Advent dream? Well, I think the response that we are called to is this. If Jesus really is the king, then we ought to treat him like the king that he is. You see, after those uh, shepherds left, Mary and Joseph and Jesus were uh, visited by three different kings, and, and these kings ultimately recognized that this baby was the one true king, the, the ultimate king, and they bowed down to him and they gave him all sorts of gifts. Friend, to be honest, friends, to be honest, we, we often don't treat Jesus like the king that he is. For years, I can remember seeing a, a, a bumper sticker on cars. It was really uh, popular to put this uh, bumper sticker on your car. And the bumper sticker said something like this. It said, Jesus is my co-pilot. And I can remember seeing that and, and, and thinking about that and, and what exactly that meant. And I think in some ways the bumper sticker, the bumper sticker was, was strangely prophetic. Because I think many of us think of Jesus as someone who sits in the passenger seat, one who encourages us and comforts us and cheers us up on the road of life. But at the end of the day, you and I are still in the driver's seat. We are still the ones who like to call the shots. But ultimately, that is not treating Jesus like the king that he really is. We often treat his commands as if they are clever options on how to live life better. If we feel like obeying, great. We treat his mission for us as if it were secondary to our own careers and our own wishes and our own desires. But friends, Jesus never leaves that option open to us. He is our king His mission has to be our mission. It has to be the central thing that defines our life above everything else. I once had a boss who I really appreciated because he was very straightforward and I really liked that about him. But I can remember one day he pulled me aside and he said, if I give you an instruction or a task, know that that task immediately becomes the top of your priority list. It becomes the first thing that you work on. And friends, yet when Jesus asks of us the very same thing, we tend to only get around to it if we feel like it. Friends, I can honestly say that I've gone through some really dark and uh, dark times spiritually where I have struggled with all sorts of anger and resentment towards God. Maybe you've been there before, maybe you're there now. But what I can tell you about me is what is the root of that anger and that resentment 
is my attempts to be my own king. You see, I want to be my own king. I want to call the shots. And if God doesn't somehow get on board with my plans and my purposes, then I get angry with him and I resent him because of it. But what I need to be reminded and what we all need to be reminded of is this, what one commentator said, for every ruler, there must be a bowing down. As our king, he calls our lives to be defined by something bigger than just ourselves. We are called to something so much deeper than just living for our own mission and our own wants and our own desires. Friends, Jesus is the unlikely king who came to suffer, who came to deliver us. This Advent season, let's not just worship him, but let's treat him like the king that he is. Let's pray.